would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4? And uh, if you'd like to use one of the blue Bibles under the chairs, you can find Acts 4 on page 772. We're in the middle of our spring sermon series on the book of Acts. We've called Acts a sequel because Luke, uh, the author, wrote the Gospel of Luke, and this is Jesus part two. The church is empowered by the Holy Spirit to continue to do and to teach what Jesus began while he walked among us. And last week in chapter three, we saw the apostle Peter heal a man who was crippled from birth. Over 40 years old, healed in an instant by the power of Jesus' name. Well, no good deed goes unpunished or unopposed. And what we'll see this morning in Acts chapter 4 is the beginning of a pattern that will develop throughout the book of Acts, which is the rising up of opposition to anyone who will proclaim this good news of Jesus. Let's read, uh, starting in verse 1. Listen carefully. These are God's words. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone, everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, work in us a greater desire to see the glory of the name of Jesus than a desire to see 
signs and wonders. Because the greatest sign and wonder is that Jesus was raised from the dead. And then the greatest sign and wonder that applies to all who trust in him is that you would raise any sinners from the dead. That you would, as a holy God, forgive any sinners of our transgression against you. Continue to work that miracle by your word and through your spirit. Even in this hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Real simple outline. We're going to start, looking, start by looking at the opposition against the apostles. We'll consider the claim to exclusivity that Peter gives. And then we'll look at a few responses that would be natural in light of this teaching. Luke starts chapter 4 by telling us who's against the apostles. Three groups are named in verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees. The priests would be the, the, the priestly caste, powerful, significant influence, uh, religiously speaking, among the people. The temple guard have the physical power with the weapons to enforce the decisions made by those who are in power. The Sadducees are the wealthy, aristocratic politicians with all kinds of ties to the governing Roman Empire. Down in verse 5, we see three more groups, rulers, elders, teachers of the law. These are the scribes, the scholars. These, these are the influential figures, more people in positions of authority, the well-connected. And then finally in verse 6, Luke mentions four leaders' names along with, quote, the other men of the high priest's family. This is a who's who of Jerusalem. It's as if Luke is taking pains to emphasize this point. Everybody who is anybody is lined up against the gospel of Jesus Christ. These apostles are in for it. Well, why such opposition? Verse 2 gets right to the reason. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. But don't think for a minute that this is a theological disagreement alone. The Sadducees didn't uh, believe in, in resurrection. That was, that was part of it, but, but it went far deeper than um, a, a spiritual debate over doctrine because the idea of resurrection was incredibly threatening to these leaders who had a lot to lose being in positions of authority and influence and power and status. Resurrection means that God will set right all wrongs. Resurrection means that he is the one who is truly powerful. Not those who make religious decisions and bind people's consciences. Not those who are in authority over uh, life and death, government who can order executions. Not those who have the money uh, or the influence to buy off the religious or governmental kind of power. But the one who raises the dead alone has that kind of authority. The reality of resurrection means that those who trust in this life-renewing power aren't afraid of punishment, not even death. A ask a police officer. He'll probably tell you that the most dangerous kind of opponent is one who doesn't care if he dies or not. Uh, he doesn't care if he gets into a gunfight. He doesn't care if he's the one who loses because he's out to prove a point. 
And some of these dynamics um, lie beneath the persecution of, of evangelical Christians in China even today. It has very little to do, if anything, to do with doctrinal disagreements. It has everything to do with the fear that Christians in community banded together with such fearless zeal pose a threat to the communist establishment. Christianity grants an identity to, to people that goes far deeper than their identity as Chinese citizens. Christians place themselves under the ultimate authority of God himself, not under the ultimate authority of the Communist Party. That kind of fearless zeal poses a threat, regardless of what the particulars of the doctrine are. And so opposition arises because of the reality of and belief in and ramifications of resurrection. Back in Acts chapter 4, verse 7, these leaders collectively allied against the apostles begin to interrogate Peter and John. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the most important detail that Luke the author can tell us about what's about to happen. And being filled with the Spirit does not mean, as it didn't mean in Acts 1, 2, 3, and, and now 4, that Peter's uh, suddenly going to burst out with some kind of miraculous power because he's filled with the Spirit. It does mean, as it has as a pattern and will continue to show, it does mean Peter's about to preach a sermon, being filled with the Spirit. He's about to proclaim Christ, the risen Savior, from God's Word. That's what the Spirit's filling in believers always leads to, and we've said that as a pattern. And just as in Acts 3, Peter's sharing of good news involves aiming arrows at the hearts of his hearers. It involves this direct statement, you crucified Jesus. But just like last week, it also involves these gospel words, but God raised him from the dead. You crucified, you sinned, you rebelled, but God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive with Christ. Opposition to the Messiah is powerless in the face of resurrection power. That's the first thing Peter wants them to know. But God raised him from the dead. Verse 11, he, he quotes Psalm 118, and he, he makes it personal. The stone you builders rejected has become the capstone. Jesus had already quoted Psalm 119, uh, 118 back in Luke chapter 20, uh, among other places, um, against these leaders, asking them if they understood it. This time they're not laughing. This time they realize that the piece of the puzzle they threw out was actually the most important. These followers of Jesus can't be stamped out. Uh, opposition is like a trick candle on a birthday cake. The harder you blow, the more frustrated you get. The more disgusting it is to just share in your birthday cake because you're spitting on it, but that's, that's beside the point. Um, you can't snuff out that kind of candle. The irony is that Annas and Caiaphas were part of that inner circle that had had Jesus arrested and tried overnight and carted off to Pilate in the morning for execution orders. They watched him die. They snuffed out his candle. And now weeks later, the flame is burning more brightly than ever before. It wasn't just one guy with a dozen henchmen and a crowd following him, eager to make him 
king by force. Jerusalem was buzzing with thousands of converts emboldened by their faith that the crucified Jesus was risen, was victorious. And and, and I think it's pretty intentional that in verse 4, Luke mentions the number of believers, male believers, not even counting women and children, growing to now 5,000. And he puts it right in the middle of his lists in verse 1, 5, and 6 of everyone lined up in opposition against Jesus, as if to say, oh, by the way, <laughs> you, can, you can pull in more allies, more powerful friends of yours, um, and wield more threats. In the meantime, the city is talking about this name, and more and more people are giving their lives in absolute trust and surrender to this crucified Jesus whom God raised from the dead. This is a picture of Psalm 2, which starts this way. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. That anointed one is, is the word Messiah. And do you know how God responds in Psalm 2? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. You cannot blow out the candle because resurrection power will bring it right back. Opposition today against Christianity is not all that different. It will be futile, according to Psalm 2, but it will continue to grow and persist until Jesus comes back at the end of history. Why? Because there can only be one king. There can only be one ultimate authority. There can only be one real source of life and life renewed. And a me-centric world just can't handle that truth. It couldn't handle in the Garden of Eden. It couldn't handle it in the first century with the life and and ministry of Jesus, and it cannot handle it today. Truth about Jesus, about resurrection, unsettles secular thinkers just as it unsettled all of these religious leaders listed in Acts chapter 4, allied against the cause of the gospel. That leads us secondly to uh, this claim of exclusivity. The heart of the chapter is in verse 12 when Peter says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That kind of exclusivity, notice Peter's double emphasis, no one else, no other name, that kind of exclusivity sets off alarms, especially today, doesn't it? Sets off alarms in uh, academics, It sets off off alarms in the media. It probably even sets off alarms around the office water cooler. Uh, Any casual conversations. A a group like ISIS, unfortunately, seems to prove that point, right? That it it is so dangerous to be close-minded. How could anyone possibly claim that there is one way to any kind of truth? And so um, ISIS becomes uh, a contemporary example. Uh, Those adherents to radical Islam claim that there's only one way. 
that if you disagree, you pay the price of your life. There is no dissent allowed. There's no compromise. There is no negotiation. You either agree, fall in line, submit, or pay the ultimate price. But atheism is no antidote. Don't fall for that uh, claim. Uh, Tim Keller quotes Alistair McGrath in his review of atheism. Uh, McGrath wrote this, The 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes of human history that the greatest intolerance and violence of that century were practiced by those who believed that religion caused intolerance and violence. And does anyone really think that humanity has progressed that much in a span of decades that the opposite is now true? Religious exclusivity, in general at least, is not the problem. Well, the world's preferred secular alternative Uh, almost always involves this kind of combination. First, starting with pluralism. Pluralism is this belief that there's more than one way to God, that all religions are equally valid, that Jesus in particular is one among many examples of respected prophets, Messiah-like figures. But he's certainly not the only way. Pluralism, more than one. That um, leads to a second related ingredient, relativism. Even back in the 1950s, President Eisenhower made this famous remark that American democracy depended on, quote, a deeply felt religious faith, and I don't care what it is. That's relativism. Whatever you believe is fine. Whatever I believe is fine. You don't have to believe anything. That's fine. As long as we are sincere and good-intentioned, and don't bind anyone else's conscience, don't force anyone else to believe as we do, we can all coexist. Your beliefs are just as good as mine. That's relativism. And these two combined uh, are inclusive because um, whatever you bring to the party in terms of religion or irreligion is perfectly acceptable. You're included. No one is excluded on the basis of faith or lack thereof. Pluralism Relativism, inclusivism. Big words, important that we understand that that's the air we breathe in today's society. That's the water we're drinking um, unless we're intentional and and paying it, um, uh, uh, focusing on on what it is that the world around us is insisting is the only way. That's the irony. That uh, this alternative picture has all kinds of holes in its logic. And, And let me just... I'll uh, give you two brief examples, okay? Um, th- these are two statements that are pretty common. No one can insist that their view of God is better than anyone else's. You've probably heard that before, right? Maybe, maybe you've had that uh, thrown in your face. But, but that can only be true if there's no real God and every religion is able to create its own fictional idea of deity, Right? There's no God. Make up what you want. Be sincere in your beliefs. And every version of God, every version of a way to worship God in religion is equally valid. Or that could be true if there is a God, but he's just this impersonal force. He started things in motion and now, now can't, um, doesn't care at all how humanity relates to him, her, she, it, whatever. Um, And no one really believes this, that um, 
their view of God is no better than anyone else's. Or the flip side, that every, every version of religion is equally valid. No one really believes this. Because no one in their right mind would agree that a religion centered on child molestation and child sacrifice could possibly be the equal of any other major world religion. And if somebody insists, well, now, come on, that's, that's, that's an extreme, well, then the question becomes, well, who gets to decide what's extreme and not on the list? Who, who gets to, to draw that line between whacked, crazy, off-your-rocker kind of religion and perfectly acceptable and therefore in this category of equally valid. There's an inconsistency. A second statement uh, I know you've heard is your insistence that Jesus is the only way is incredibly intolerant. But the problem is that pluralism and relativism and inclusivism taken together tend to forbid others to do what their position itself requires. And so being tolerant of all views of God involves being intolerant with anyone who disagrees. You have to wield the weapon that you forbid others from using when you have this secular um, philosophy. The problem is most religious people in the world do actually believe that their way is uniquely correct. But the tolerance police won't tolerate that kind of attitude. An inclusive perspective is really a form of exclusive exclusivity. That's the irony and the internal inconsistency. The issue shouldn't be whether exclusivity is allowed or not. That's not the point. The, the, the issue should be whether the exclusive claim itself is true or not. Is Jesus really the only way of salvation? Is he the only one in whom healing and rescue and restoration of all things can be found? If not, folks, we should run as fast as we can away from Christianity. The Apostle, Peter, uh, the Apostle Paul himself wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And we are to be pitied more than all men. We're a sad lot of folks wasting our time if there is no resurrection from the dead. But if it is true, if resurrection is real, then the healing of a lame man, Acts chapter 3, and other times of refreshing that we should be praying for are just the beginning of God's promise to restore all things on the last day. And we have greater hope than anyone on this earth. Objections to exclusivity almost always are accompanied by objections to an idea of a holy God of justice and wrath. Here's a lesson, though, from Acts chapter 2. If we look Old Testament, New Testament, in the Old Testament, fire was often fatal. Think of Uzzah, a priest who had the gall to reach out to touch the ark as it was being transported. Fire came down from heaven, consumed him, gone. Think of um, Exodus uh, starting in uh, chapter 19. The Israelites come to Mount Sinai in the desert, and God comes down in fire, and through Moses, the Israelites are commanded not to touch the mountain because God is a holy God. They can't come near. Old Testament fire was often fatal, but now in the New Testament, the fire of God, the flames... Uh, representing the power of the Holy Spirit that come upon every individual believer 
in Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 2, is, is no longer fatal. Why? Because by Acts chapter 2, the fire of God has already been poured out on God the Son, Jesus himself, who suffered hell, justice, holy wrath on the cross as a substitute for sinners like us, whose sin does deserve holy justice. And so when the holy justice of God comes down on the Israelites at Mount Sinai in Exodus 32 because they were making a golden calf to worship instead of God, 3,000 people die. But in Acts chapter 2, when the fire of God through the Holy Spirit comes down upon the people, nobody died. And instead, 3,000 people came alive in Christ. That's the first harvest at the end of Acts 2. Here's the greatest irony about the gospel. What you may object to, justice, right response to sin, is always what you cry out for regarding your enemies, regarding people who wrong you, who insult you, who, who cross you, who talk about you behind your back. You want rightness, response to their sin. You want justice you never want it for yourself. There's another internal inconsistency. And yet, if you do come to see through the power of the Holy Spirit that your sin against a holy God deserves this kind of justice, you place your trust in Jesus. Justice has been satisfied by Christ on your behalf. Exclusivity means that only Jesus pays the price for your sin. Exclusivity is a beautiful thing because Jesus has offered a way for us to escape the wrath of God that our sin deserves. That's the good news. Uh, lastly, how do we respond? Um, a, a few kind of miscellaneous things and then a uh, closing thought, okay? Uh, first, a word to skeptics. You want a miracle. It might not be the first thought in your mind, but uh, so very often, someone who says, I'm not sure I believe in God, and now if he proves himself to me, then I would believe. You want a miracle. In your doubt, you want proof that God is real. Here's the irony. The greatest miracle that God longs to work in you is applying resurrection power to you, and that requires trust in his perfect promises that are all residing in the person and work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And if you push Jesus away while you're waiting for a miracle of God, God can't work the greatest miracle he wants to work in you. Something's got to give. If, uh, if you would open the Bible, if you would listen to a Christian friend, if you'd come, continue to come to church, if you would humble yourself enough to admit that there just might possibly be a real God, then he will reveal himself as real to you. Uh, a second response in general, uh, meaning to everybody, be specific. Last week I pointed out that the, the theme of the name of Jesus is so prominent in chapter 3 into chapter 4. Uh, it shows up nine times in these two chapters. Uh, the other day we were skiing as a family, last day of the spring, to get out there. 
And one of my kids thought they saw me from the chairlift. I was uh, apparently skiing down the trail that, that they, they, they started yelling. Uh, she started yelling. I won't say, share names. Um, Dad! Dad! For some reason, her friend captured this on video. Uh, so we have, uh, we have audio proof, at least. And um, I didn't respond, so she resorted to, Peter! Peter! Turns out it wasn't me. Um, but had it been, at first I might have thought, okay, some kid's calling for her dad. But when it went to Peter, I would have looked up. Because the more specific name means me more likely than all the other guys who are coming down this trail uh, who might be dad. When you pray, when you call upon God, you cannot use the name of Jesus too much. You cannot overuse the, the name of Jesus, who is God as he has been most fully revealed to creation, especially to his people. God means all kinds of different things, mostly false in, in today's world, in English. Uh, God very often means the very opposite of God, a false God. Um, the, the very opposite of what he stands for, what he has come to accomplish. I'm not saying you can't use that word, but use the name of Jesus. You can't use the name of Jesus too much. You can't call upon him too much. So um, speak his name with reverence. Call on Jesus. Pray to the Father in Jesus' name, very specifically because his sacrifice grants you access to heaven itself. Thirdly, a response. Um, on a related note, look at verse 18. Uh, they, the leaders, called them in again, Peter and John, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. The one thing they send them off with is, don't talk about this guy. That's the one thing that they command. If you go to a church, maybe you're visiting and checking out GRC this morning, but if you go to a church... If you're listening to a pastor preach in, uh, in person or, or on the internet, if you want to evaluate some kind of Christian ministry, is it effective, is it solid, and if you do not hear the name of Jesus exalted, celebrated, proclaimed, shared, revered, valued, then walk away. There's an easy litmus test. Walk away. Not saying there's zero value, that's not the place for you. That's not the preacher for you. That's not the ministry that is going to honor God and, and um, proclaim biblical values because this whole revelation of God is about Jesus. He is not a good luck charm to be invoked sparingly. Uh, he is not some sideshow to a lesson of morals and a way of living. He is God revealed to humanity. He is life and life renewed. He is the only means of salvation. Your prayers then need to be about Jesus and his glory and his kingdom. And your witness needs to point people explicitly and specifically directly to Jesus. Uh, in a recent article, uh, you may have come across this, uh, published in The Atlantic, Graham Wood wrote what ISIS really wants. He said this, Non-Muslims cannot tell Muslims how to practice their religion properly, but Muslims have long since begun this debate within their own ranks. You have to have standards, 
Anjum Chaudhary told me. Somebody could claim to be a Muslim, but if he believes in homosexuality or drinking alcohol, then he is not a Muslim. There is no such thing as a non-practicing vegetarian. This guy uh, was on 60 Minutes. You may have caught him there in an interview, I think, with Leslie Stahl. There's, he says, there's no such thing as a non-practicing vegetarian, to prove his point. And, and I, I could easily repudiate 99.9% of what Chaudhary says, because he's a radical. But I'd say this, and borrowing his phrase, and there is no such thing as a non-Christ-proclaiming Christian. It doesn't exist. It's an oxymoron. The name of Jesus is, uh, is the definition of our identity. Uh, we'll close with this big picture thought. Chapter 4 is set up by chapter 3's healing of the lame man. And Peter preaches two sermons, first to the crowd and then to these religious leaders. And in each, he's basically saying the same thing. You need healing and saving just like this lame man did. That is what God is up to. That is what resurrection power means to you specifically and to the world in general. And the only way of healing, the only way of fixing what is most broken about you, which is your sinful heart, is through faith in the name that is above every name, Jesus. Last Sunday, in the pastor's email, we've been talking about the Dropbox film. Uh, over a dozen of us went to see the world premiere two Thursdays ago. The um, encore is tomorrow night in Edgewater at 7 p.m. I cannot urge you more strongly to take the time tomorrow night on a Monday night, take your kids Go see the Dropbox film in Edgewater. You can get tickets online. It's a story, uh, a documentary about a Korean pastor and his wife who have rescued hundreds of abandoned babies, mostly disabled, left on the streets of Seoul. Brian Ivey directed this film. He read about this ministry in the LA Times. And as a college kid at the time, and as an aspiring film director, he said he figured that this story would be one step towards... Uh, making a name for himself in the film industry. He wasn't a Christian, but during the making of the film, he committed his life to Christ. And this is what he shared at the world premiere last week. I saw all these kids come through this drop box with deformities and disabilities, and eventually, like a heaven flash, I realized that I was one of those kids too, that I have a crooked soul, all this brokenness inside, but God still wanted me. That was a powerful moment, having seen this movie. Your teeth may be perfectly straight. Your morals may be nicely lined up. Your bills may be paid on time. But you have a crooked soul. You have a broken heart. And salvation, healing, restoration of all things to the body and soul wholeness that God has designed you to enjoy is found in no one else than Jesus, for there is no other name given to heaven by which we must be saved. You may be hearing that for the first time this morning. You may be realizing by the power of the Holy Spirit in you in ways that you've never realized that I have a crooked soul, I have a broken heart, I want to urge you 
to come to faith in Jesus Christ. I want to urge you to bow the knee in humble submission, trusting that the way of the world cannot bring you to the renewal of all things. But Jesus alone, as countercultural as that sounds, that Jesus alone is the way of salvation, bow your knee before him this day. Trust him as new creation. Come talk to me. Talk to one of the ushers. Grab a, grab a Josh. Uh, if you know uh, another um, a person in the church who is a maturing Christian and tell them that you are committing your life to Christ or if you have questions about what this means because this day is the day of salvation for all to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Let's pray in his name. Father, this is what we want because this is what you want. You desire the lost to be found. You desire the broken to be healed. And the only means that you have provided, the glorious means, the beautiful means, is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would be blowing through this place with a fresh wind, with the holy fire of justice, because that justice for every person who trusts in Jesus has been placed on Jesus, not on the sinner. That is a marvelous thing to behold. We celebrate that. We praise you. We ask for more of Jesus to overflow from us. We pray this in Jesus' name.